0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We're going to see what the people do next is sing. And what we're going to look at this morning is the song that they're singing. And what we're going to ask this morning is, why do we sing? What do we sing for? And again, there's at least a few of you who are saying really you to talk about singing. You already make us sing five songs every Sunday, and now you 're going to talk for thirty minutes twenty eight minutes about singing. I get that i 've uh, never been one who has enjoyed singing. I just grew up in one of those households where there wasn 't a lot of music and uh, I've always felt like it was a bit embarrassing for people to see me sing. Most kids spend much of their childhood just singing whimsically. Like, that's what my kids do. Just whatever they're doing, they're singing involved, right? It wasn't me. I remember in year seven, we had um, compulsory choir, and I took a detention every week rather than be in the choir. I was just the only one going to get me singing up the front of any hall. I remember uh, in prep, I've, what the clearest memory of my first year of school was um, standing in the corridor I can see it now, standing in the corridor where all our bags were hung up and I was singing. You're the voice trying to understand it. Make a voice. No. Make a noise and make it clear Whoa. Well, right, I was doing that, and I turned around, and there was a girl standing there, her name is Christy, I liked her a lot, even as a six-year-old, right, I, I knew what I liked, and I liked Christy, and she was standing there watching me, and all she was doing was smiling, she wasn't laughing, she wasn't making fun of me, she was, just had this warm, loving smile, and all I could come up with was to say, that's what you are, and run off. It was true love. My daughter came to me recently and told me about this kid at school, this boy who was making fun of her and teasing her, and I was like, he likes you, sweetheart. He likes you for sure. She was like, what are you talking about? You'll get it. So I've never been much of a singer, which is a shame because because God is a God who sings. Bible makes this clear. God is a singing God, and we are made in God's image. I feel like we have been created to sing. In fact, in the Bible, there is apparently 50, no less than 50 commands for us to sing. Not suggestions or or ideas, but commands. Like, God is really serious about getting us to sing. There's all kinds of reasons why that is. There have been studies that have been done, and you can check this up, about the, the psychological benefits of corporate singing, that it releases stress and, and um, increases endorphins and so on. But I think even more than that, it's just a, a bare fact that freed people sing. It's some, something that happens to freed people, that we're not only freed from... Our bondage, but we're freed from our inhibitions. Something happens when we really when we come to terms with the fact that we've been set free, it leads to singing, and that's exactly what's happening here in this passage today. The people of Israel have been released from 400 years of slavery. 400 years of slavery has just been consumed in a, in a second as the waters of the Red Sea have consumed both horse and rider, both chariot and army, and their response is to sing. And we saw last week, remember, we, we saw how Paul interprets this great event in 1 Corinthians 10, 1-2. To, to he says this i don 't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He says that this this event had there was more significance to it than just the historically bound event it actually has an impact on how we see ourselves that we, as people who have been saved from slavery to sin and baptized in the waters of 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 Jesus' baptism have now been set free and so as the people of Israel went from the west side to the east side of the sea and were set free through it so we have been and so their response is to sing and it follows that our response should be one of singing. And so what I want to look at this morning is, is four reasons from this text four reasons why we sing. And then I'm going to give you three songs to practice once we're done, all right? So moving pretty quick now, four things. The first, the first reason that we sing, the first thing we sing about is the salvation of the Lord. So check it out, verse 1 to 2 of chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. God is our salvation. This is, as far as I'm concerned, this is one of thousands, 10,000 reasons, right? We sing praises to God, but for me, it's the primary one. This is what gives voice, not just voice, but affections to my singing of God's praises, Is the fact that I know I'm saved. God is a God of salvation, Freed people are singing people. This is just something that it comes naturally to those who understand out of the, the thing out of which they've been saved and the grace by which they've been saved. This is true in Exodus 15. It was true in the early church and it continues to be true today. The church has always been a singing body. And scholars tell us that You know that beautiful passage in Philippians 2, they tell us this is one of the early church creeds and probably an early church hymn. So when the early church got together, right back in the first century, this is the kind of thing they sang about. Remember this, Philippians chapter 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here comes the song, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was a hymn that the church sang. And it was a hymn that they sang. I just imagine them singing it with gusto. They knew that God was a God of salvation. And they, as first century Christians, formerly Jews, understood that this salvation was the great culmination and fulfillment of the salvation that they have learned about every year in the Passover, in the crossing of the Red Sea. And so the fact that God was their salvation gave them a voice and words to sing. And I think... Irrespective of how you feel about singing, it's, it's secondary. It's not important. I think irrespective of how you feel about singing, if you know the depth, the richness of God's salvation, then you'll sing. You will if you truly understand what you've been saved from and at what cost, then you'll sing. I wish I, could, I wish I had time to go into the life story of John Newton. Incredible. His life story, if you ever can get a hold of a biography, it just reads like an action novel. His story as a slave trader on the high seas and all that went on there, but he was saved out of a life of absolute darkness and debauchery and he knew it which is why he wrote the hymn amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i once was lost i was once in bondage in slavery but now i'm found i've been saved and set free right he understood it and it resulted in the greatest hymn that's ever been written so We sing because God is the God of our salvation. Number two, we sing because our God is a God of strength. Verse three to 10. Let me read this for you. "The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. We sing because our God is a God of strength. We've seen this. This is one of the major themes, right? of The first half of the book of Exodus, God is not to be messed with. You have enslaved my firstborn son. I'm not going to stand for it anymore. He establishes his power. First of all, to the Israelites. Remember he said... Moses asks, "Who are you?" I am. That's all you need to know. I am. I am perfectly self-sufficient. I am eternal. I am unlimited. And so, all through this narrative has been this. This. It's. It's a fake arm wrestle, really. There was never any contest, but it was Pharaoh telling those around him that he is the Lord, that he is God, that he is I am, and then coming face to face with the real I am. God establishes his power in the plagues, plague after plague after plague, demonstrating his power over creation. And now finally, he demonstrates his power in the absolute devastation of his enemies. God is a God of power, and that's why we praise Him. You've got to imagine, I mean, just think, because, because this, is, this is a little bit off for some of us who are a little bit more le- leaning towards the, the passive side of the spectrum, right? We, we, we tend not to delight in violence and in displays of power, but you've got to think about this. You are standing on the eastern side of the shore, having just now witnessed the complete devastation of your, all of your enemies. You have endured, and your people has endured, 400 years of slavery, enslavement that included the the drowning of your firstborn sons, constant fear, constant unrelenting fear and enslavement. And then in a second, everything that you had to fear is no more. That kind of demonstration of power leads to thanksgiving, leads to praise. And so you can see this here, right? They, they sing the song and then Miriam and the girls just take it to the next level. They, just can't, they can't contain how happy they are, right? So in, in verse, uh, what is it, 20, 20 to 21, then Miriam the prophet Aaron's sister took a timbrel in her hand. That's like a tambourine type thing. And all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. She sings this great song about there not being anything to fear anymore. Horse and driver. Chariot and army. That is... Everything that we had to fear is gone. That gives you a kind of release that is best expressed in song. And in case you just think, by the way, that this is just a, an oldie-timey thing, when that, back when they loved war and blood and triumph and all those Military motifs? No, no. The church has always loved those things. We know who God is. We know that He is a warrior. We know that He utterly defeats His enemies, and we delight in that. In fact, we're going to sing about it when I'm done. Check this out. We got I got some lyrics here. We're going to sing salvation. We, redeemed, shall sing and tell with one accord the song of our Redeemer King, of Jesus Christ the Lord. Salvation be our only cry. The battle has been won. Salvation we will testify till Jesus calls us home. The battle has been won. And this this victory over the Egyptian enemies... It was just a prefiguring, just a shadow of the victory that Jesus would win on the cross. So I want to look at those, those vi- that victory now in the, the final two points, okay? So first point, we sing because of the salvation of the Lord. Second point, we sing because of the strength of the Lord. Third point, we sing because of the cosmic victory of the Lord. Verse 11 to 13. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The people of Israel know that this is more than just an enemy over the Egyptians. This is, a, 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 this is not just a, a victory over the Egyptians. This is a victory over cosmic powers. Who among the gods is like you? It's not just Pharaoh that has been demonstrably defeated. God has shown himself to be powerful, sovereign Lord over all powers. So again, we saw this last week, remember? Moses tells the people in the face of an oncoming army, be still, stand firm. And Paul picks up on that language in Ephesians chapter 6 where he says, our battle is not against earthly powers. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers. And so he tells us to stand firm. To clothe ourselves with the gospel and to stand firm. The enemy that we have today is not arrayed in Egyptian armour, but it is arrayed about us. That army's leader prowls around like a lion looking for people to devour, Christians to devour, and his servants are part of a strategic plan to destroy the faith of disciples of Jesus. And so in the midst of that battle, we are called to both stand firm and to sing about the victory that Jesus has over our enemies of Satan, sin and death. It's this curious thing, right? Throughout history, if, you, if you're a bit of a history nerd like I am, it's this curious thing that on, on the most bloody and gruesome battlefields, there has always been singing. Singing. Read about the, 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 the battle songs of the Vikings, or I got to see when I visited the highlands of Scotland that about the, the fearsome songs of the clans of the highlands of Scotland, right? These, these songs that they would sing that would do something to their enemies, that, it, that it would invoke fear in them, that would make them tremble, It made them sound bigger and nastier and, and, and more numerous than they actually were. If you can stand in the midst of a situation where you can have your head cut off at any minute and still be able to sing, that tells your enemy something about your confidence. And when we do that, we don't sing about our own strength, but about the strength of our Lord. Martin Luther remarked about the power of the singing church to make the devil tremble. And so we sing about the cosmic victory of our Lord over all of his enemies. And what I love about Christianity is that whereas here we see this triumph of God through strength, through power, through the annihilation of his enemies with sheer terror and power, the ultimate victory of God, his biggest win was achieved through the power of God. Love. That's the great, That's I mean, that is the great ah, juxtaposition of, of the gospel, right? It's power and love. It's victory and sacrifice. That's what Jesus does on the cross. I wrote it out for you so you can get this. If you want to memorize something, I think this is pretty good. The Lord's most powerful deed, bigger than the crossing of the Red Sea or anything else, The Lord's most powerful deed that triumphed over all cosmic powers and destroyed Satan, sin, and death was born out of his unfailing love. At the cross, God's love conquers all. I love that. So we sing because of the the salvation of the Lord, the strength of the Lord, the cosmic victory of the Lord, and finally the future victory of the Lord. Verse 14 to 18. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be still as stone. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you brought pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, the Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. See, they've just witnessed this incredible victory. But they don't, their song is not just all about the victory that has been. Their song is also about the victories that are yet to come. That victory gives them confidence and faith that God will continue to be victorious. So they sing about future victory. And I'll tell you what, this is a curious thing. All of the best hymns, which is to say all the hymns that we still sing today, you notice the last verse is generally about future victory. We always end by singing about God's kingdom that will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. We, talk about, we sing about eternity. And that's because we know that the victory that was won in the past on the cross means... That God will win all future victories. And therefore we have nothing left to fear. And when we have that kind of perspective, right? That future-oriented perspective, that eternal perspective, when we have that, it, it's an antidote to anxiety and depression and fear. What this is what happens, right? You, you can ask the many psychologists in our congregation if I'm wrong. But here's what I know from experience. Fear, anxiety, depression, they all do the same thing. They all take your perspective and zoom it in on that, that darkness, that hopelessness, this present moment, and it becomes consuming. And so what having an eternal perspective does is that it broadens our vision and destroys fear, anxiety, depression. It does. That's why Paul says in, I think it's Philippians chapter 4, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in all things, by prayer and petition and thanksgiving, Right? and he says, the result of that is that you have a peace which passes understanding. You have a peace that doesn't make sense of your current circumstances. It's an antidote to these things. So dwell, and By the way, all of the Christians who have ever been persecuted, which is 95% of the Christians who have ever lived, we're the weird ones this morning, right? All of those, those Christians have done this. They've focused on future victory. Because when your sons are being thrown in the river and your wives are being raped, that's where you go to survive. That's where you go to cling to God's goodness in the midst of darkness. You go to future victory. You go to restoration. I'll tell you something. If my wife Renee gets taken from me or my little babies get taken from me in some terrible, terrible eventuality, I will be shot down. You won't see me for a while, right? You'll need to keep the sharp things away from me for a while. It will hurt me deeply. But God will preserve my faith, And the thing that will keep me from insanity and from blasphemy will be future hope, future victory. That in 10,000 years, I'll be standing with wife and children, praising the God who has saved me, right? That's where our hope is anchored. And so as the people of Israel sing about those future victories that God will wrought. So I believe we are called to sing, praise God for victories that we have not yet seen. We have 10,000 reasons to sing of God's goodness and in 10,000 years that's exactly what we're going to be doing. I'm going to invite us to join in that praise. But first of all, I want to pray for us. Because I don't have time to get to it, but if you read just a little bit further in this chapter, you'll see in verse 22 and following, the people three days after singing God's praises are now grumbling against him. They've gone three days since that event and they're already turning inward. They're already focusing on their present losses they're already turning away from him. And so I want to pray that these songs we're about to sing wouldn't just be a, a momentary thing, a once-off for your week, but that this this, this praise, this, this, this this habit of 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 celebration would punctuate all of our days. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. We have 10,000 reasons to sing of your goodness. 10,000 reasons to sing of your grace. You are the God of our salvation. You are our mighty and sovereign God. You have won victories over Satan, sin and death. And we yearn for the day when your final victory will be established, where all of your enemies will be put under your feet, including your enemy of death, And all we'll have is infinite days to sing of your praise. And so as we look forward to that day, we also want to participate in it now. And I pray that as we stand and sing, you would stir up within us godly affections for you, for who you are, for what you've done. I pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.